to talk to you about my kid's lunch. They should eat it. All <laughs> of it. I am a Lunchables mom. Have you ever had one of those? Uh, I'm too old for that, actually. I mean, that was past me and my uh, phrase. I eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Okay, well, there's usually a chocolate or some type of candy, right? And then I think the, the ones they pulled all of them off the shelf, they usually buy 10 at a time to get us through the week, is uh, uh, a ham and cheese one with crackers, which has been a big winner in my kiddos. But I have a few questions about the label for you. We know you can buy those things separately, right, Mike? It takes too much time to oh, okay. actually so it's a put conv- the sandwich together. Oh, uh, okay, okay, because that's really hard to put the sandwich together. Yeah. <laughs> takes me too much time. I'm like, easy. You just open the refrigerator door, pop it in a lunchbox, you're good to go. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim Lowe. And I'm Dr. Ashley Mytek. And welcome to The Round Bar. All right, Jim, so I have a question about uncured ham. What exactly does it mean to have uncured ham? Well, Ash, why don't you read us that label off that Lunchable? Because when we talked about that before this, it's it's absolutely fascinating to me what gets put on the, what on the Lunchable label. So what were the words on the Lunchable label? There's a lot of words on there, and a lot of them I honestly don't understand. But it says fully cooked uncured ham and cheese, no nitrate, no nitrite, no antibiotics, and no hormones. And I have to keep it refrigerated. There's a lot of information for me to take in while I'm shopping. Well, the tick is keep it refrigerated because that's a food safety thing. Okay. So there's a lot of interesting, right? This is the interesting space in food today because we have a lot of labels and I think most interestingly, that mo- most of those words are very unregulated. Okay. So as long as they're not a bullface lie, there's not a le- lot of regulation that FDA has in a packaging. So um, this term uncured is a fascinating word to me um, because there's no legal definition of that. What, what does that really mean? And there's no um, clarity around that. So when we talk about ham... We're talking about the back leg of the pig and it's those muscles. And to call it ham, we really have got to use those back leg muscles of the pig. And, right, we probably all grew up with a ham with a bone in it. And, you know, that was how we, you know, have I didn't, eat. did not grow up with okay, that. Okay, well, but... uh, those of us that are like Midwesterners, that was Easter or a big holiday meal, right? We'd have a ham and the whole back leg of the pig is there and you'd carve it off. And today we consume most of our ham boneless. So, right, we take that ham and we bone it out. And then we reconfigure those muscles, individual muscles into products like what goes in your kid's lunch here or the ham sandwich I would eat for lunch, right? I eat a ham, a, um, a boneless ham product for lunch most days. A little mayonnaise and white bread right up my alley. Is that your, that's your go-to? That's my go-to. Yeah, you I, make it each morning? All by myself. Wow. Wait, you spend more time on your lunch than I do on my kids' lunches? I got to gotta up need to my think game. Of, you, need, you need to think about your life, Ashley. That's <laughs> I need to start. I'm going to bring you some Lunchables and you can test no, no, it no. out. I'm going straight for the ham sandwich. Okay. Okay. So, but this ham. So we eat this boned, bone-free, boned-out ham or boneless ham we eat. And it, we reconfigure that. And so ham is really in its kind of meat way, only two things. It's either what we would call green ham or uncured ham, which is muscle that looks just like a pork chop. I mean, it's just a, you know, right? It's if I cook it, it would be white. Uh, it doesn't have any color to it. It would just be a 
chunk of pork roast at that point. It's back leg pork roast. And if it was a cow, we call it a round. I mean, it's the same piece of meat. And then there's cured ham, which is what we all think of as ham. Uh, and that tends to be pink in color. And so when we think about, let's step back one more step, the process of curing. And curing has always been around preservation. And curing is an ancient thing that's happened. And it was a way when we harvested an animal, really any animal, before refrigeration, how did we keep that meat fresh or not spoiled? I guess it wasn't fresh, but how do we keep that meat uh, from not being spoiled? And so it spoils because you've got protein and sugar and water together. And so when we think about curing, we think about removing the water from that meat so that it doesn't spoil. And, and that's turned into an art, right? We think about Serrano hams. We think um, about all these fancy European hams, about how we put things together. And, and so you think about those bits and you say, okay, so this is something that's gone on for you know more than a day or two. And certainly in the U.S., right, you can buy sugar-cured hams in the South, right, to this day. So that kind of curing, which is very historical, was always dry curing. So we packed that ham in salt and sugar, and allowed the salt and sugar on the outside to pull the moisture out. So if you go to uh, uh, a ham factory in Europe making Serrano hams, um, those are hung up then for a long time and allowed to dry. They just literally hang in a big dry room and they control the temperature really closely, right? If you go to Tennessee, you'll t- you hear them talking about a country ham in Tennessee and those are hung up, quote, quote, in a barn. I mean, we don't put them in a barn anymore, but that's how they would have been made. You'd have butchered a pig, you know, taken his two back legs, packed it in salt, and then hung them up in a sack so that they dried and then they were preserved in that state. That product is, um, if you've all had uh, Parma ham or, or Serrano ham, right, or European, what we think of as European ham, right? They carve that off very carefully. It's it's dry. It's almost like jerky, but that's traditionally how we did undry cure. Today, right, when we have ham, the ham that's in your Lunchable kit, well, not exactly, but the ham that's in your Lunchable kit and the ham that I would eat for lunch, right, it's pink, it's soft, it's juicy, it's moist. So kids like it. I mean, old men like it. It all works. Um, and it's not because they have bad teeth. I have very good teeth, but I still like the soft stuff. So that has been cured to retain the moisture inside of it. And so that's a wet curing process. So that's a very different deal. Those have to still have to be refrigerated. They're not shelf stable like a dry cured ham is. And so traditionally to do that, we would pump it with a salt brine. And that works best when you use some sodium nitrate or nitrite. And nitrate's what's in the, in the brine. Um, that sodium nitrate plus salt plus sugar stabilizes the meat. It gives it the right color stabilizes the protein, stabilizes the muscle fibers in it, and it prevents bacterial growth. So it's it's quite stable. It's not shelf stable, but the hams that we buy today that, you know, come in the plastic wrap or the boneless ham, most of that is cured in that way. And that's to give it the taste, it's to give the flavor. That's why it's moist, because that actually retains the water in there. The, the pump does to do that. So when we cure that, we actually inject that product right into the, right into the ham. You just have a big needle and series of needles yeah it's uh it's a giant pump machine it's a whole series of needles and it comes down on that ham and it pumps it in there and it fills it up and it adds weight and then you put it in a thing called a tumbler so you bounce it around for a while to distribute that fluid inside of it and it's in a brine bath when it does that then you take it out put it in a bag and you just you smoke it then so you cook it 
and then you put it in a bag and you're off to the races. So that's the kind of classic, it's a smoking type process. But it's brine before. It's the same way we make bacon. I think they use the word uncured ham in this. Yes. So that's a crazy misnomer. It's cured and it's cooked. So to get the color and the taste and the flavor, it has to be cured. There has been water added to that product. Okay. The difference between the uncured, the quote, quote, labeled uncured ham and the quote, quote, cured ham is not that it's not cured. It's that it's not cured with nitrate. So there's no sodium nitrate in there. And there's some concern that large volumes of sodium nitrate are bad for you. It can bind oxygen and, you know, you can have nitrate toxicosis, right? We worry about nitrate and water, but it has to get to really high levels. So if you're worried about nitrate in your ham, you'd have to eat more ham than me. And that's probably, um, I'm probably 10 or 12 standard deviations above the mean for ham consumption in the United States. And How so, much ham do you eat? Um, let's not talk about my problem. Do you eat it more than once a day? If I was left to my own devices, I'd eat it three meals a day. Oh my gosh. Do you eat other meat too? You sure. Do you but, eat vegetables? Yes. And fruits? Yeah, I like the vegetables. Okay. It's just like a ham sandwich. Okay, I'm gonna have to give this whole ham sandwich. Yeah, well, the real deal ham is, ham sandwich. The real the real deal is actually that like I could eat the same meal a hundred times over. It's just about calories, and so I'm not a change up guy. Just uh, fine. That's great. What do you eat for dinner? Um, oh, I get a real meal for dinner. It's just if I'm there by myself, I'm like I'll just eat a ham sandwich. That's just it's too much work to cook. I'll just eat a ham sandwich. Got it. I'm full and I go on. That's that's the that's the deal. So. I don't think it's a big safety concern when we think about this, but it's certainly a heck of a marketing concern to say, hey, moms are worried about too much nitrate for their kids. Um, therefore, I don't want to feed them this ham that is nitrate free. And so that's when you see that label on there and you see you, they said, ah, it doesn't have nitrate in it. That's really the take home. It doesn't have nitrate in it. It's just cured in a different way. So it's not uncured. It's just nitrate free. And should we eat too much nitrate? No, but... That's become a hot button marketing issue and, and their job is to sell stuff. And I, so I don't begrudge them, right? It's a, it's, that's their job is, is uh, merchants and is, as producers. And so they've said, uh, people want to buy this. You don't even want you're buying. I'm like, I don't know. I don't want this for convenience, but they've tacked that on there because obviously for some people that's important. So that's the nitrate, the uncured conversation. And so, um, if you eat too much of anything, it's never good for you. Right. So, right. Now they put, I, I think we're just used to seeing ham in these Lunchables and you were talking about how ham is from a certain part of the pig. Is there a reason, is there another part of the pig that they could put in there that's edible or a name for it? No. So we have historic, these things, right? Food is part calories, part culture, and maybe a bigger part culture than it is calories, right? So we have historically cured the back leg of the pig and called it ham. Is it just tastes better or? No, that's what we've done. I see. What do we do with the front leg of it? So the front leg is in the pig is known as the butt, which is confusing. But what? The front shoulder of the pig is known as the butt. And so you. B-U-T-T? Mm-hmm. The very top of the shoulder. Is Did a pig that name this? I know. It's always been called that. So it's called actually called the Boston butt. The very top of the shoulder is called the Boston butt. So when you take the front leg off, you got the top of it's called the Boston butt. And then you've got the, the picnic, which is the piece below that. 
Again, don't ask me where the names come from. I just know what they are. But that whole front leg, so we use that front leg. So the front leg structure, the muscle structure in the front leg is very different than the muscle structure in the back leg. There's a lot more connective tissue in that front leg. Most of the weight in all of our animals is on the front leg. And so the front leg tends to be less tender. So if, I, if that was a cow, we call the front leg the chuck. And the, everything out of the front leg is a chuck. And everything out of the back leg is a round. And so, right, you don't think about having a chuck steak. You have a chuck roast, right? Because we're going to put that and we're going to wet cook it. And we're going to break down the collagen that's in it because of the fiber. That back leg tends to be a little more tender. It's not as tender as the middle meat, so that loin muscle in the middle. But could we ham cure a front leg? Sure, we could ham cure muscle off a front leg. We could ham cure a loin. We do that all the time. We call it Canadian bacon. A loin is the top part of the pig? Yeah, it's the top part of the longissimus dorsi muscle. The middle of your You're back. taking me way back to yeah. anatomy. Yeah, so the longissimus dorsi muscle is the loin um, on all of our animals. And so in the pig, it's the whole thing. And when we cure that the same way, like you'd cure bacon or like you'd cure a ham, that gets called Canadian bacon. So the Canadians would have cured not only the belly and the back leg, but also the back of the pig, the loin of the pig, as a way to preserve it. And that's where Canadian bacon comes from. So Canadian bacon is a pork chop cured like a ham. So do Americans, we don't eat the front leg of pigs very often. Oh, we eat. It's the, one of the most valuable parts of the pig right now because we make it into barbecue. Oh, okay. So pulled pork is almost exclusively made out of front leg. Because again, when we're thinking about cooking a chuck roast, and I'm going to cook a picnic in a pig. There's a lot of connective tissue in there. And so slow, low, slow, and wet is the top is the ticket for tough meat. And so you want to cook it slow. You want to cook it at a low temperature. Those go together. And then I want to cook it wet, or I want to make sure that the moisture is retained. So I'm going to put moisture around it, you know, put it in a closed pot, put it in a closed container when I cook it. And so wet cooking on that front leg is important. And so barbecue does a perfect deal, right? I can cook it super slow. I can smoke it, pull it apart, put barbecue sauce on it. I've got a nice, moist, edible product there. And so because of the popularity of pulled pork, that front leg of the pig today is super valuable. We sell those, we sell those parts out at a high value today. And what's the most expensive part of the pig? As a, like a, how do you measure it? Pound? Yeah, dollars per pound. Yeah, the total value. So historically, this tell you how things have changed. Uh, historically, the loin, pork chops, would have been the most valuable part of the pig. Today, there is a clear winner that the belly is the most valuable part. Bacon is the most valuable part. If we could have a pig that have five bellies, it'd be great um, because of the value of bacon in the marketplace today. Uh, and That's then the, because of consumers. Because really of consumer demand. Bacon. That's what they're willing to pay for. That's right. That's the trend. And the trend has gone away from eating pork chops and gone away from eating ham and gone to eating bacon. So at one point, it would have been the, ham, the loin and the ham, and then we almost couldn't give the belly away. Nobody wanted to eat bacon, and the front leg was an afterthought. And now we would say, ah, oh, the belly, and then the front leg, and then the ham, or maybe the loin, and then the ham. But what was historically more valuable parts are not as valuable today because consumers' tastes have changed. Interesting. We don't need a lot of ham in this country. We export a lot of hams. Tremendous amount of ham gets exported to Mexico, but it gets exported not as cured ham, but as green ham, so uncured ham because they use it in their cuisine in an uncured format. They'll cook that just like a regular roast. And so that's part of their, again, cultural differences and what parts they want to use, et cetera. I think the other cultural thing that is really sensitive to Americans right now is the topic of 
antibiotics in meat. And that's definitely one of the labels that's very prominent on these Lunchables is that it says no antibiotics. Do you think that's true? Well, I know it's true. And I also know that that's another one that's a bit confusing as a label. So what they're really talking about when they say no antibiotics is raised without antibiotics. So ant products that are labeled with quote, quote, no antibiotics are raised without antibiotics. Those animals have never been treated with antibiotics from birth until the time they're harvested. And that's a true statement. The companies do that and they believe it. And there's audit trails. I've been involved in that process. And so that happens. So that individual animal that ends up in that package was individually never given antibiotics or as a group. He's not, that individual has never received uh, antibiotics. Now, what happens when we have a barn of pigs and we've got one sick one? Well, we treat the sick pig. He just doesn't get harvested in the no antibiotic program. So there's basically two flows of those pigs through the packing plant. Two flows of those turkeys, two flows of those broilers, two flows of those calves through the market. So we see a lot of that happening. Um, it's really big on the turkey side, really big on the chicken side. And that's pretty easy in chickens because they're only around six weeks. So from hatch to marketing is only six weeks in a chicken today. Is it hard to raise pigs antibiotic free? No, but the success rate isn't 100%. Okay. So I can't, if I have 100 pigs, I'm not going to get all 100 pigs raised without antibiotics. So my hope is I get, um, because we raise them in groups, I would hope that I would get 70 to 80% of the groups to not be sick, that they require some kind of intervention. And in American swine industry, what <clears throat> percentage would you say of those pigs are raised antibiotic free versus um, farms that raise them with some antibiotics if they get sick, they're going to have to get a little bit of, I don't know, what's the most common antibiotic you'd give to a pig? Oh, well, there's a lot of choices, but let's just, let's just say uh, penicillin. Okay. So the, the antibiotic, raised without antibiotic market in the United States continues to be very small. It was expanded uh, quite rapidly several years ago and demand isn't there. So consumers in the U.S., um, there is a segment of the consuming public who is willing to pay for that. Um, there is a much, much larger segment that is not willing to pay for that. And there's a cost of, so there's two bets. Raised with that antibiotic products are sold more expensive. They're more expensive to, to produce a little bit, not a lot, three or 4% more expensive because there's some tracing and I got to do some different stuff. And right, if we have sick animals, we do treat them. So it's, it's just that those animals don't end up in that program, but, but, we can raise them without a tremendous amount of cost. It's that there's a tremendous amount of tracking of that product then, which the U.S. industry doesn't do with that granular level. So now instead of having one flow of pigs or one flow of chickens through a packing plant, I now have to have two. I've got to have the ones I keep in track of that didn't have antibiotics and the ones I keep in track of that, that may have had antibiotics. And, you know, right, raised with, but doesn't mean they got them. So there's some tracking. And then quite frankly, there's a marketing value that, that the consumer brands, and right, I don't know what Lunchables you buy. It doesn't make any difference, but that's a consumer brand. Whatever they have at Aldi. 
whatever they have at Aldi or, or Oscar Mayer, whatever it is. And I'm not begrudging them, but that's how they differentiate in price. And so there's a consumer value that they charge. And they're like, oh, we're not going to add this for nothing. Uh, we're going to charge more for that. And the con- American consumer said, not really willing to pay a lot more for that. And no hormones. Well, let's finish the Can I finish one yes, thing on the antibiotics? Yes. So why that no antibiotics is misleading is that all meat products do not have detectable levels of antibiotics in them. So by federal law, and as a veterinarian, my job is to ensure that that doesn't happen. And I have legal liability if it doesn't. So we understand if we have to treat an animal, how long it must be uh, held so that it has a chance to get rid of all that antibiotics out of its system. And when you say you want to make sure that animal is held before it, before it's harvested, you mean this concept of withdrawal time? That's right. That yep. you as the vet have to keep track of, or you have people that keep track of this, that if you decide to give penicillin to a group of pigs, you know... They can't go to slaughter probably the next day. I don't know what the withdrawal time is for penicillin. Well, penicillin's a bad example. It's probably 300 days. It's 300 days? Yeah, it's forever. So we don't use penicillin. Okay. But if I use tetracycline, it's 14. Okay. So I know that I can't market any animal that's been treated for 14 days after it was treated. And if I think it might take longer than that for them to clear out the... antibiotic because they weren't sick or they're not eating or something, then I have to extend that. And that's my legal responsibility as a veterinarian to do that. How long does it take to grow a pig? Six months, plus or minus. And then, okay. So they're about six months old when they go to harvest, a little over six months, six and a half months old. Um, so there's five months before, well, four months before that in pregnancy. Three months, three weeks, three, three days. 115 Woo! Day. Still there you remember go. something from your class. See, there's one thing I taught you. But the, so I got, you know, this 115 days. And then I've got from the time it's born till the time it gets harvested, six and a half months, somewhere in that neck of the woods. It's pretty predictable. Got it. Did we cover antibiotics? Yeah, that's the antibiotic thing. I think it's just important that, again, it's another case of kind of a misleading label, right? Because there's never antibiotics in your meat. But what they're saying is those products were raised without antibiotics. And if you think that's important, more power to you. Let's do that. We kind of think that sick animals ought to have treatment. Maybe I'm biased as a veterinarian, but little kids get sick, little pigs get sick. We ought to do those things and we ought to eliminate that suffering. And that doesn't mean that animal isn't good for food and we should use it that way. Sure. And hormones, that has been a hot topic too. Misleading label number three. Well, talk to me about hormone use in food, food animals. Yeah, food animals. So here's the really cool thing. You, you had a turkey lunchable and a pig lunchable, ham lunchable. Yeah. So they both kind of said hormone free, right? Yeah. Well, here's the cool part. There are no hormones approved for use in turkeys or pigs or broilers. So chicken and it's not just not suggested it's illegal to use them so i can't go find something else designed for horses and give it to pigs and make that legal that's not you go to jail for for that so that's again that's a really misleading label because it's just yes they raise without hormones absolutely because we're not all wearing orange jumpsuits today so where is that 
deal. So we do use hormones and we use anabolic or anabolic steroids in cattle. For what? For growth promotion. So um, cattle respond very, very nicely to um, the implantation of a synthetic testosterone, trembolone acetate. Even girl cows? Even girl cows. So um, it's mixed with a little bit of estrogen. And so we give the girls a little more estrogen than we do the boys. But um, we put a, a, a implant, literally an implant. So, um, you know, these birth control implants that they use in humans, right? And so all that is is a series of plastic pellets that elute uh, hormone over time. So in that case, progesterone and estrogen, they release, and they release a steady dose of that over time. So uh, the plastic is designed, so it's soaked in the hormone, then it's released out. Okay, well, instead of putting progesterone and estrogen on it, we put trembolone acetate and estrogen on it, and, and we put it in the back behind the ear of a cow. So this little absorbable pellet goes away, uh, contains that, contains those two hormones. So why do we do that? Well, it decreases the amount of feed needed by about 20%. Wow. So they're 20% more efficient when given, and steers are more responsive than heifers. So steer uh, male castrates are more responsive than females, intact females. Um, and if you think about it, that's because we, right, steroids or male hormones, testosterone is a potent anabolic steroid. It does deposit muscle, right? So think about all the baseball players that were taking roids and their heads got big and McGuire and Sammy Sosa, right? It hit the ball really far because they were tasting horse steroids. They're taking anabolic, they were taking straight testosterone intended for horses. And so that um, effect, in some respects, happened in cattle to a much lesser degree, but it forces them to shift muscle production, energy used to muscle production instead of the fat deposition, particularly external fat deposition. So uh, we worry about cattle putting fat up on their back, just like human older men put fat on their belly. Uh, cattle put fat on their back as they gain weight. And so what we do is we shift that and we say, ah, don't be putting on fat, put on um, put on muscle. So it makes them more like teenagers instead of old men is really what we've done. So there's a big- I don't know which one's worse. Yeah, both. Um, they, they do act like teenagers, they're squirrely. Um, and the reason we do that is, is that we don't feed intact males in this country. And so we feed only male castrates because- uh, for two reasons. One, um, when you feed intact males, you can get a, an off flavor to the meat. So bull meat or boar meat tastes very different than male castrates, barrow or steer meat. And then that is actually enshrined into federal law. So if you harvest a bull or we harvest an intact boar, you can't buy that in the grocery store in the meat case. Those animals are not eligible to go into the regular meat supply. It's not. A, is there a health concern? No, it's a taste concern so that people would have trust that when I buy it, I know I'm buying not buying old boar meat. I know I'm not buying bull meat. So those animals are harvested, but those animals end up in sausage products. They end up ground, but they don't end up in the muscle ca in the meat case where the muscle is at, the intact muscle is at. And that's that's enshrined in law. So we can't even send those animals by law in the U.S. to the slaughter plant. So we raise all male castrates. And, and that's great behaviorally. That's fantastic. 
the challenges those animals aren't very efficient. So in the cattle world, right, it's a big, it's a hot debate. There is a consumer preference and part of the consumer base that they would much rather buy cattle, rather buy beef from cattle raised without anabolic steroids. And that sounds great. The problem is, is that the people that want to buy meat without anabolic steroids tend to be the same group who is concerned about, significantly concerned, I think we're all concerned about greenhouse gases, but more actively concerned about greenhouse grass emissions. So I now just put 20% more feed in the same calf to produce the same amount of weight, which is 20% more greenhouse gas emissions. And it takes longer to feed them out too? Yep. So irrespective of the economics, if you're willing to pay me for it, we'll do whatever. It's a very it's a simple business, right? If if you want to buy beef raised without anabolic steroids, sign me up. Here's what it cost, and it's more expensive. It's significantly more expensive, but it wouldn't kill us all to spend the same amount of money on a little less meat, right? That I don't think that's the problem. The problem is is that that really changes the greenhouse gas footprint of cattle production. And so whether they're significant contributors or not doesn't make a difference, but I know they're going to add more (laughs) to the mix if we don't use these technologies. And I think all of this discussion gets back to this idea of how do we balance technology use for making food safe, making food affordable, um, and minimizing the amount of resources we need to produce that food with consumer demand for some of these, um, I'm gonna call them uh, uh, not enhanced, but different management practices, different rearing practices, animals reared in a different way. That's a lot of things to balance. It's a lot to balance and it's a really hard question that a lot of really smart people have worried about. The retailers think about this all the time. And there's, with beef in this country that does, would you say the vast majority of beef in this country get that implant? And Yeah, the, the beef that is not getting that implant in the U.S. is uh, what you see is all natural. Okay. So you'll see meat labeled beef, not meat. All beef is natural. I mean, all meat is natural, right? We didn't, unless it's, you know, some lab-grown stuff. But if it came out of a critter, it's natural. But there's a beef label that people use. It's called natural. And so those cattle uh, generally are, um, they are not raised with, there's no added hormones in those cattle. Uh, They may or may not be antibiotic free. That's a loose deal. Uh, They may or may not be agent source verified, meaning that they're guaranteed less than 20 months of age, which is necessary in some of the export markets. Um, so there's some interesting, right? Again, it's one of these labels that becomes a marketing hook that doesn't necessarily mean very much, except it probably means they didn't put a hormone implant in the rear. So again, there's a market for that material and there are people that are willing to pay for it, but it's the balance of what am I doing with these enhanced kind of practices and what does that do to the trade-off? And it's a, it's an interesting deal, right? Hungry people don't ask these questions. And, it, and I don't say that being sarcastic, but people who are in a calorie deficit, and there's a lot of people in a calorie deficit, even in this country, right? I mean, we have a lot of people that are poorly fed in this country, which is, should be an embarrassment to us, all of us, right? But we have a lot of people who don't have enough calories, don't have enough protein. Um, globally, in this country, wherever, 
they aren't asking these balance questions of how do you raise it? What do we do? They're like, I just need some calories. And, and it's, it's the balance between society or, or, or calorie balance, calorie availability for the poor, for the hungry, and the wants of the wealthy. And how do we balance those things in a food supply chain? And it's, it's interesting stuff that keeps me engaged, but none of it is simple. And it's changing. It seems like it changes every week what people want or what becomes the new fad, if you will, for food, right? Yeah, there was an interesting article I saw. Now I can't recall what it is. But how do we get food fads? And what drives these and why do we come in and out? And so it's that um, a lot of it is around spin, marketing, whatever you want to call it. And I don't mean by companies, but by people who are um, advocates for particular views, right? So they say, oh, we're going to health or whatever. I mean, I'm not, I'm not picking anybody, right? But they're like, oh, we should do this. And so they get out on this path. So I remember years ago, they said brand prevented heart disease. And so, and I don't know who came up with that. My grandma believed it and she ate like all brand cereal. And if you've ever seen this, it is awful, right? I mean, it's like, you might as well just go eat the grass. And so she ate all brand cereal every day because she had heart disease and she thought this was going to, because her doctor said this was the thing to do, right? Well, kind of find out none of that was actually true. Uh, but somebody had advocated that. And so you see these and you see these food fads and you see these things coming around. And the problem is, is that they push the food fad. This is the point of this article. And I wish I'd remember what it was, but the, this food fad comes out and it's supposed to be Nirvana and then it doesn't happen or it is achieved and nothing fantastic happens. And so then we have to have the latest new craze to move in the right direction. And again, Food's a cultural thing as much as it's a calorie thing. And it's the intertwining of that becomes um, very interesting. It's interesting if I go to Europe, there is very little discussion about how we should raise pigs to make Serrano hams or how we should raise pigs to make Parma hams. Like, I think they could destroy the world and it's not a debate because we're not giving that up, right? Because that's a deep part of the culture. And so it's... It's how do we balance these things and how do we continue to balance? How do we continue to produce food that's cheap enough for people to afford, that provides the nutrients necessary for them in a way they want to consume it, which is a new bend on the thing, right? It used to be you just bought whatever you had and you had to make it, right? But Lunchables are a perfect example. How do they want to consume that? So how do they want to consume it? And in a way that really minimizes resource use, we forget the whole environmental debates. The world is growing and we don't have any more land. And the more land we dedicate to agriculture, i.e. in the Brazilian rainforest, <laughs> the worse it is for the environment. So we got to figure out how to feed more people on the same amount of resources or probably less resources over time and do that in a way, right? So all this gets mixed up and it's, uh, I keep saying it's not going to be an interesting time to be an animal egg, but it, it just continues to be a fascinating time to be an animal egg. Well, now I'm hungry. Great. I'm sure our listeners are too. So we should probably wrap it up so everybody can go get a snack. Uh, Make sure it's the- a ham sandwich. <laughs> or a Lunchable. Or a kale smoothie, whatever your thing is, or almond mug latte. And with that, thank you very much, Dr. Lowe. Thanks, Ash. 
Have a great day. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening and we'd love to hear from you too. Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at the round barn one. We may even share your comments on our next show. Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. One last thing, we also offer a wide range of learning opportunities for folks who work with livestock and veterinarians too. You can learn more at online.vetmed.illinois.edu. See you soon.